When you think of Julie Andrews, you wind up thinking of all kinds of different images. But the one I always think about is her standing on the mountain, and she's singing all about how the hills are ablaze with the sound of music. Because with the sound of music coming out in 1965, Julie Andrews was 30 years old, and it cemented her as royalty of Hollywood. But it's not always been that way where she started. You see, Julie Andrews was born in 1935 in Surrey, England. Her parents were poor. Her mother had married a man named Ted Wells. It was not a happy marriage. When Julie was four years old, they divorced. She married Ted Andrews, and Julie would ultimately take his name. Julie's mom and Ted were involved in show business there in England, but it turned out that Ted was an alcoholic, and he could sometimes have a very fiery temper, and Julie's mom also was an alcoholic. It made for a difficult family life. But on top of that, in 1939, the war began. The bombings began in London. There were people who were dying. Food was short. She said, we lived in a slum. We were hungry. We were frightened. She said, this really was the dark period of my life. It was so difficult getting all the way through the war, and she remembers it well. But finally, the war was done, and her parents were performing on stage into vaudeville acts. And when she became an older child, to where she was 9, 10, 11 years old, they began to let Julie sing with them. You see, it turned out she had an incredible voice. They began to set up their show that they would be singing, and then she would kind of come up on stage like a surprise and sing a song, and she would stop the show. People were blown away. She had a four-octave range, and when this little kid began to sing, I mean, it brought the house down. She became so popular that as a young teenager, she began to perform throughout England. And as she was performing in all of these different places, she even made it to West End in London, getting parts. In her autobiography, she writes about how when she was 14 years old, she was riding with her mother on a train. And there were tough times financially. Her mother was struggling with the issues of alcohol. Finances were tough. Things weren't good at home. And she was really crying and struggling. And Julie said, I remember putting my arm around her to tell her, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm here for you. And I'll help to take care of you. At 14 years old, the transition had begun. From childhood to caretaker. I'll make the money. I'll take care of you. She did start to make her contacts. She did do well in West End. So much so that she got the opportunity to come to New York City and audition for a new show that opened on Broadway entitled um, uh, the, The Date Man. And she came. And she got the leading part. She got the leading part. She was 19 years old. She did so well that opened in 1954 and 1961 uh, in 1954 and in 1956, she tried out for the new play about to open, My Fair Lady. And she got the part of Eliza Doolittle. It was a home run. She then went on to play in Camelot when it closed, and then she went on to open in Mary Poppins, the Walt Disney movie. It was her first time on screen. It was a huge success. 
That was in 1964, and in 1965, it was the sound of music, all of 30 years old. And she was now the royalty of Broadway and of Hollywood. But the thing about Julie Andrews is she never started to think too much of herself, never beginning big-headed and boastful, never forgetting family and friends. In fact, people said of her, Julie was concerned about making money, because she was going to take care of her mother and father and family. That was important to her. To remember who you are, even when you've become so big, to remember where you came from and who you are, and to want to reach out and to bless others. I think that's what Paul was trying to talk about with the early church in Rome this morning in our scripture lesson. In our scripture lesson, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and This is not writing to a lot of unchurched people. No, the church in Rome was the church in the early church. It was there in the seat of power. Now, it was true that in the early church, the majority of people were the low socioeconomic class. But in Rome, there were people of the middle class. And there were the people who were wealthy and of power. And so Paul is writing to this church of the wealthy and to the poor we're not going to forget who we are. I don't want you to think too highly of yourself. I I don't want you to think too highly of yourself. I want you to let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. I want you to show brotherly love to one another. Can we remember who we are? Whether we are the rich or we are the poor, we are transformed within with the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus. Do you remember it was Jesus who said the greatest commandment, the most important thing you do? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said that's the first commandment, the most important thing. For if you love the Lord your God and you put God at the center of your life, it is going to transform your mind. The way that you look at yourself and the way that you look at other people You will think correctly, appropriately about yourself. You will be able to love in a genuine way. That's why you and I come to worship each week. That's why we do this. We step aside from the world where it's easy to conform to all of the values, focus on the external. You and I come to worship so we remember how much we love God. And we feel God's love. Because it changes us, transforms us from within This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway. This is our fifth week now, and we have one more week to go. But we have said that this year we celebrated our 125th anniversary. We started the first Sunday after the land run, 1889. And when we started, our first building or where we met was on 3rd and Broadway. Now here at St. Luke's, we love the arts. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun to look at all the wonderful shows that have been performed on Broadway, the values, the issues they deal with, and then think about all of the values that have been proclaimed for 125 years at St. Luke's on Broadway. So that's what we've been doing. You know, we, we've looked at The Little Mermaid, and then we looked at The Music Man, and then we looked at Beauty and the Beast, and then Les Miserables. Today, we go back and we look at one of the true greats, My Fair Lady. 
You may know My Fair Lady was originally a book by George Bernard Shaw. It was entitled Pygmalion. And it was Rodgers and Hammerstein who decided that could be a musical. So they set to work on it, and they worked on it for a year. And then they finally decided, that's impossible. It's not going to work. They set it aside. And so then it was the team of Lerner and Lowe, Alan J. Lerner, Frederick Lowe, great lyricist, who came together, worked on the story, and sure enough, they produced My Fair Lady. It would hit the stage in 1956. They asked Russ Harrison to play the part of Dr. Henry Higgins, Professor Henry Higgins. And then they went out and got Julie Andrews at 21 years old to play the role of Eliza Doolittle. The show was a huge success. It ran for six years on Broadway, at that time the longest-running Broadway musical in history. Over 2,700 performances, won six Tony Awards. And then when it closed in 1962, it turned out that Jack Warner of Warner Brother Pictures decided he wanted to make it into a movie. He paid $5.5 million to the rights of the show. That was unheard of in those days. And so he went out and he got Rex Harrison to play, again, Professor Henry Higgins. But then he went out and got Audrey Hepburn to play the role of Eliza Doolittle. The show opened in 1964, won eight Academy Awards, cost 17, $17 million to produce, which again was over the top for a movie in those days, and it made $72 million. If you adjust it for inflation, it is still the 56th highest grossing film of all time. In case you have not seen it, the story is about a lady from the wrong side of the tracks, Eliza Doolittle. She is poor. She sells flowers on the street corner. Her dream in life is to sell flowers in a flower shop. That's as high as she could see, but that would be great. She murders the king's English. She has a horrible accent. She is dirty. She dresses poorly. She lives basically on the streets. She's doing the best she can. And what the show really is about is two men who make a bet. Is it possible? Is it possible for someone to be transformed from the gutter? Can they be transformed and taught how to speak, how to dress, social etiquette, and can they make it in the upper class? That's the question. Can someone be transformed? And then, of course, you have Professor Henry Higgins. Professor Henry Higgins, well, he's the linguist. He is wealthy. He is handsome. He has all the outer trappings. He is very successful. But what you look at him is what is he really like? To look at Henry Higgins, what you see is that he is very selfish, self-centered, conceited, arrogant, unkind. And those are the nice things that you can say about him. If you want to know the spirit of Professor Henry Higgins, well, all you got to do is go back and look at some of the great songs that were written to talk all about him. One of my favorite that Henry Higgins sings, Why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so honest and thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair, who when you win will always give your bat back a pat. Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? 
Can't a woman learn to use her head? Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up and, well, like their fathers instead? Why can't a woman take after a man? Why can't a woman be like me? Or, if that doesn't help you understand him, his other song, well, after all, Pickering, I'm an ordinary man who desires nothing more than an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. The average man am I of no eccentric whim who likes to live his life free of strife doing whatever he thinks is best for him. He is incredibly selfish, self-centered. I just want everybody else to be like me. I just want everyone to know that I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do. And so you look at the story and you think, ah, it's all about Eliza Doolittle. Can she be transformed out of the gutter to be able to be known as royalty? But actually the story is even more about Henry Higgins. Can someone who has so much, who speaks so well, who looks so good and have it all, can they be transformed within, in one's heart and one's mind? For you see, that's where the transformation really happens for us all. As people of faith, we know we are called to be transformed. Whether we are wealthy and powerful or whether we are poor and powerless, we're called to be one family of faith. And we are transformed by God's love. For when you and I remember how much we love God, we start to think about ourselves differently and others differently, and we are transformed from within, Paul says. That's what I want us to think about this morning. There's just three things that I want to say. First of all, I like it when Paul says, Everyone... I bid everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. To think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's basically saying how easy is it to put yourself in the center of the universe. Where you want everyone else to be like you. Just like Henry Higgins said, why can't a woman be like a man? Why can't you be like me? We want things to go our way. It is easy to make yourself kind of the center of the universe. That's what Henry Higgins did. Henry Higgins, as I told you, was played by Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison was an incredible actor. He played Henry VIII, and that's where he won his first Tony Award. And then when he played Henry Higgins, he won his second Tony Award. And when he played Henry Higgins in the movie, he won his first Academy Award for Best Actor. He was amazing. And the reason he played those parts so well was because that's who he was. Rex Harrison was basically King Henry VIII and Henry Higgins on steroids. As a young boy, his name was actually Reginald, but he decided to change it to Rex because he discovered that the word Rex in Latin means king. I might as well go ahead and be king where it all revolves around me. His autobiographer said about Rex, Harrison was abusive, philandering, self-serving, gluttonous, egomaniac with a blind indifference to the thoughts and feelings of others. 
Nobody escaped his vile temper or scathing tongue, not even his fans. That's a nice way to be remembered, I mean. It was said that if you did what he wanted you to do and everything went his way, he was incredibly charming. But if it didn't, do you know anybody like that? There was another biographer who said, Rex Harrison and Henry VIII had a lot in common. They were both tyrannical. Both got through six wives and both enjoyed fine dining. It is true, Rex Harrison was married six times. Two of the women he loved committed suicide. He was hard to be around. He loved fine dining. The stories were legendary. He would go out and how if everything wasn't just perfect, he would throw a fit. There was one night he was in New York. They served him fish and he decided it wasn't fresh enough. So he picked up the fish and he threw it and hit the mater d' with the fish. The mater d' came back over, doubled up his fist and cold cocked him and knocked him out of the chair onto the floor. His second wife, Lily Palmer, said, that was actually one of the most enjoyable night of our marriage. <laughs> when Rex Harrison died, he was 82 years old. People got together and said, where are we going to hold his funeral? And one person suggested, how about a phone booth? That ought to hold all of his friends. Before you and I just throw Rex Harrison under the bus, stop and think. Haven't you ever said to yourself, why can't everybody else be like me? If everybody else would just think like I think, don't you know what I want to do? Have you ever found yourself in a time where you were insensitive to anybody else's feelings? It's about me. Haven't you ever found those times when you're the center of the universe? It may not be to his level. How many times have you been out at dinner and everything wasn't perfect and you just were so rude to the waiter? It is so easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Paul would say, focus on what it means to be loved by God. If you love God and you remember how God loves you, it changes the way you think about yourself and the way you're going to think about other people. Secondly, I like it when Paul goes on and says, but each should think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned to him. Think with sober judgment. You see, I believe it is sometimes very hard. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But the other hand, sometimes we think more poorly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think too little of ourselves. I am convinced that quite often God believes in you more than you believe in yourself. Remember Paul's writing to this church in Rome and he has those who are the wealthy and the powerful and he's trying to say, if we're going to have a family of faith, you've got to not think too highly of yourself. Remember, God loves you. You're special. But then to all the masses who are the poor and the powerless, don't you know God loves you too? That God can use you 
to bless life. God can use you to change the world. Do you believe God believes in you? You see, it was Eliza Doolittle who was that person who found herself on the street corner selling flowers. And she lived in a very class-structured society. The story takes place now in the early 1900s in England. It was a very class-structured society. And if you were born poor, you stayed poor. Middle class, that's where you stayed. The rich, they stayed rich. And you didn't mix the classes. That's why the song, Outside the House on the Street Where You Live, was significant. Because at this point, she had the fine clothes and she mastered the language and she's at Professor Henry Higgins' house. Ah, the street on which you live, she was now wealthy, the royalty. What street in which you live? If you're the poor, do you matter? Isn't it easy in our lives to decide we're going to be conformed to the world? That is, we settle for who we are. You want me to do what? God could use me. Me? You know, Julie Andrews was 21 when she got that part of Eliza Doolittle. It was this huge break in her career. Six years later, when it was done, she knew Jack Warner decided he wanted to make it into a movie. It had been such a successful run on Broadway, wanted to make it in a movie, and Jack Warner was in control with Warner Studios. As I said, five and a half million to get the rights to make the movie. And so it was that he asked Rex Harrison to be the lead and to play um, the part of, of Henry Higgins. He originally asked Cary Grant because Cary Grant was a big box office star. And Cary Grant said, no, no one can play Henry Higgins except Rex Harrison. And we've learned that's correct. It was typecasting. He had that role down. But instead of choosing Julie Andrews, he chose Audrey Hepburn because Audrey Hepburn had already had a number of movie successes. None had been a failure, and he knew she would be the box office draw, even though Audrey Hepburn would not be able to sing the part. Her voice would have to be dubbed over, whereas Julie Andrews could have sung the part. It caused quite a stir back in England, and in many places they felt Julie should have had the part. She wanted the part. Before all that was going on, Walt Disney had come to Julie Andrews and said, now that your run is through on Broadway there with uh, My Fair Lady, I want to offer you a part as a flying nanny. How would you like to be Mary Poppins? She had never been in film before. And she said, I want to be Eliza Doolittle. And he said, fine, we'll wait. So she auditioned for the part. And when she received word, she did not get it. Walt Disney was there to say, but I want you. And so she went on to go make, the next year, um, the show, Mary Poppins. It was her first time to be in film. And the film came out in 1964, the same year that My Fair Lady came out with Jack Warner owning Warner Brothers Pictures. So those are the two pictures that came out the same year. Those are the two pictures who are garnering all the Academy Award nominations. And that year, the Academy Award for Best Actress went to Julie Andrews for playing Mary Poppins. Jack Warner had been so afraid she would not be able to carry the part and gave it to Audrey Hepburn. And her first time out, she wins the Academy Award for Best Actress. And that night, 
with all over the place packed. She came up to receive her Oscar, and she made her acceptance speech. And I want to read you the end, Julie Andrews said. And finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Thank you for not choosing me. She went home with the Oscar, and she was asked later, what did you do with it? Where did you display it? And she said, I put it in the attic. I couldn't have it out on the mantle. I was too intimidated. I wondered, am I really good enough? It made me feel so uncomfortable to see it. I had to live into it for a number of years before I could finally bring it down from the attic and put it on the mantle to see. Even royalty sometimes feels, am I good enough? Even me? It is so easy to think poorly of ourselves, to wonder, can God use me to bless life? Can God use me to change the world? Paul was trying to say, we're one family of faith here. If you center yourself and remember that you love God first and foremost, then you won't think too highly of yourself, but neither will you think too poorly of yourself. We are reminded that God loves us all. We are all special in God's eyes, and we all have something that we can do. We will be transformed within. And so finally... Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing love. Let your love be genuine. Hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil. Show brotherly love to one another. Outdo each other. Express your love. You know, that was Henry Higgins' struggle. He didn't express his love. If you saw the show, you'll remember that Eliza Doolittle, after she is trained, they take her to the ball and she gets to dance all night. She dances with a prince and no one is the wiser. They think she is Hungarian blue blood royalty. And when she comes home from the ball, Henry Higgins is so excited. He did it. He did it. I pulled it off. We transformed her from a gutter snipe and we took her to the ball. Look at what I did. Never once does he focus on her to praise her, to express his admiration or appreciation or love for her. No, he didn't see that. Audrey Hepburn, as I told you, would have her voice dubbed over in the movie. It was by Marnie Nixon who would sing all the songs. But there was a place in there where there's a man named Jeremy Brett who played Freddie. Again, if you've seen the show, you'll remember Freddie was of the Blue Bloods, the upper crust, who actually falls in love with Eliza and stands outside her house on the street outside your house. And there he thinks of his love for her. And they have this wonderful song where they're singing to each other. And it's about, show me, show me you love me. Tell me you love Show me that you love me. And they're singing to each other. And when they saw the song after the movie was produced, they both discovered their voices had been dubbed over. And Jeremy Brett said, when you discover that you've lost your voice, it is so disappointing. It's disappointing to lose your voice. And I imagine that it is. 
But it's even more disappointing to not use the voice you have to express your love for those around you. To outdo one another in showing love. To come to that moment and realize you've taken people for granted. You've been so focused on yourself, you have never used the voice you have to express the love you feel. That's what happens to Henry Higgins. When he comes to the end and Eliza Doolittle decides to leave him and say, I am out of here, it's only then that he comes back and sings the song, I'd become accustomed to your face. To recognize, I actually had started to love her and I took her for granted. I never told her how I felt. And it's only as he begins to feel that love and express that love that he is changed. The transformation for him begins to take place. Now it's fascinating how the song was written. It was, Jay, it was Alan J. Lerner who was trying to put together the songs and the lyrics when it came to the end. They were just a short period of time before rehearsals were about to begin for this Broadway production. And he said he didn't have a song. He didn't have the closing song, a love song, for Henry Higgins to be able to sing to Elisa. And he was at home. And he said to his wife, Nancy, I am stuck. I am hopelessly stuck. I can't make this happen. And she said, how about if I go fix us a cup of tea? And so she went away. She fixed the tea with a lovely pot on a beautiful silver tray. And she brought it down the stairs, being careful to bring the lovely silver tray to him. And as she came down the stairs, he was looking at her. And he just watched her. And she came down and she put down the tray and he said, You really are a beautiful girl. What do you want? No, no. You really are a beautiful girl. I just think it's that, you know, I mean, we go to bed together, we get up together, we work together during the day, we're around, and I, I think I just start to take you for granted. I think I've just become accustomed to your face. Don't say a word. Don't say a word. He ran over and sat down at the desk and got out his yellow pad and began to write. And in no time, he had his closing song. I've become accustomed to your face. How tragic it is to lose your voice. But it's really tragic to not use your voice to express the love that you feel. Outdo one another in showing your love. Paul would say, we are rich and we are poor, powerful and powerless, but we're one church. So, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly love and make sure you outdo one another in showing love for each other. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.